Podcast episode 20. Uh, I'm Nick Nisi and I'm filling in for Tori as uh, something of a host today. And um, with me, as always, is uh, Neil Roberts. I'm just happy to be here. And Paul Shannon. Hey, Nick. Glad to see you as host today. <laughs> and we have a special guest, Dylan Shimon. Hey, how's it going? So, on today's podcast, uh, we uh, thought we'd kick it off by um, talking about TypeScript 2 and some of the changes that came in there. So, Paul, you want to talk about that? Sure. Um, so, yeah, TypeScript 2 was released recently, and I don't know, I guess we figured we should probably talk about it because it's kind of important. Um, so, TypeScript, uh, we've been working on TypeScript for years now, it feels like. I think, what, three or four years now since one point something. Um, At least three years. It's always... Yeah. At least three years, yeah. It's always been, it's always been great for applications and solving things for um, for the developer uh, that's working on applications. But um, TypeScript two kind of changes it and releases things more that are, are more set for for library creators like us. And so um, they they popped up with another number of new features um, that have made things a little bit easier. Um, one of which that I'm really happy about is the this typing. So when you're creating a, a class that is meant to be overridden in some way, um, you can you can describe the type that it returns as being this, which means whatever the um, whatever the the shape of the current class is is going to be returned as as part of that function. So if you're extending classes and you're doing crazy things with them, you're not just returning like a, a static um, static interface anymore. You're actually returning what you've extended, which is super nice for, for us who like to do crazy extensions all over the place. Um, another one that's that's also a nice to have feature is they, they have better type guarding. Um, it, they do better type guarding with property access. And so if you it used to be if you had a um, if you had a, a, an object, uh, and you did type guards on it, like you say, oh, is x dot uh, x dot foo a type of string? Um, TypeScript would forget that immediately once it went into the the uh, the scope of that that if block. Um, but now it's gotten a lot better. It will remember that, and it will also keep track of reassignments in that block to make sure that you're still correctly typed. So if you take that x dot foo and you um, you say, is it a string? Yes, it's a string. But that x.foo could also be a number, and later on you make a num number assignment to that that function. It'll ensure that you you're still you're, you're still on board with the correct type. You're still working with numbers. So um, yeah, there's a bunch of different things that we're in there. Uh, one that we're happy about is wildcard modules. So you can now define um, for a module, you can define a type as uh, using stars to complete the rest of the module, which is super useful for AMD types um, that are AMD plugins. So you can say, hey, that, um, that text AMD plugin that you're using, anything to the right of that exclamation point, we're just going to star that, and it's all going to conform to this shape. So um, those were the kind of the major ones that I was excited about. Um, how about you guys? 
Have you used a lot of TypeScript 2 yet? Yes, and specifically the this type. I had a, a question on it. Actually, maybe you could answer it. Um, if I'm writing an object that has a method on it, and in that inside of that method, I want the this property to be the object itself where that method lives, I have to define the this type, right? If you want, so if you want, you're talking about internal to the method, if you want this to be a certain type? I want this to be the object that the method lives on. I mean, so it's defined on an object, but the context is set by how you call it, right? So mm -hmm. I want it to assume that it's going to be the object where it lives, like it's another property on that object. So I think for the um, the internal value of this in the method, that, that TypeScript picks that up automatically now. If you need to explicitly define it, you can define it as a property. You can use this colon and then the the type that you want it to explicitly be. Right. Um, and then I think this, I, I, I can't remember when that one was brought in. I think it was brought in earlier, but maybe it was in 2.0. Um, I, I know that the that this type is for returns as well. So when you return back from a from a method, you can return this. Um, so if you have like a chained type um, a function, like interns commands or or something like that, where you have a uh, a fluent type return chain, yep. that's that's when this comes in handy. But you're talking. It sounds like you're talking about the the value of this inside the method. Right. So if I had an object that has a foo property on it, and that foo property is a string. And I wanted to console.log this.foo from inside of a method that is also a property on that same object. It seems like TypeScript doesn't put together that, like by default, that the context should be that object, which makes sense because it depends on how you call it. I'd have to call it as object.foo and not pass it in as a, a callback to a, a function or something like that, right? So, right. I guess the problem that, like, do you, should it assume that that is the correct, the, uh, so it seems like it only makes an assumption on what this should be if you're like on a class, but if you're just using a fun or creating a function, that's not part of a class, it's on an object or something else, then you have to explicitly set what this is going to be. Is that, uh, how you, how you understand this typing to be in 2.0? Yeah, that, that's exactly okay. what I would do. So Again, for us library makers, that comes into play for us more than, than anything else. But if you're if you're calling it on an object, I think, as long as you're not passing the function around as, as a, a literal type, mm -hmm. uh, it should assume that this is related to the object that you're calling it on. In my experience, it hasn't. Part of. Yeah. If it's in a class, I mean, it should. It's not in a class. That's the problem. Okay. I mean, if it's in a class, then it should. It's just described as an object, right? Yeah. If it's assigned to the prototype as well, it should also pick up context. Well, you know what? This is why I like TypeScript Playground. So <laughs> I'm going to pull that up. Anything the static analysis tool knows, like results in it being part of the prototype, uh, should give it the right context. Gotcha. I mean, my understanding, Nick, was that um, this in an object literal method is not contextually inferred, so you have to be explicit, which I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that, does. that makes it pretty clear to me. So, you know, it, you just, 
in your arguments into your object, you're just going to pass this colon, you know, with the name of the interface that you're um, expecting it to conform to the shape of, and then um, it works as expected. And I think um, it worked differently right just prior to 2.0, but they had to roll back uh, part of the features they were trying to add that weren't quite working the way they wanted to, which I think is the case you're describing, the okay. contextual inference of this in object literals. Gotcha. Yeah. That might be where my confusion lies. Yeah, I'm on TypeScript Playground right now, and I have an object with test and a value property, and I'm hovering over this, and this is regarded as an any type by default, unless you're, I'm assuming, unless you're in a class. Gotcha. Okay. That's cool. Uh, to answer Paul's earlier question, I guess I'm pretty excited also about the pathing map or path mapping configuration option. And part of that is because one, you know, we've had the ability for years in other module loading systems to be able to specify that a package or a, a module that we want to load is relative to some other path that might not be the obvious file system path. Um, but two, it really just gives us a lot more flexibility in defining differences between the structure of the paths we use for development time versus when we do a distribution of things like Dojo 2 or, or Intern 4 when we get around to that as well. Yeah, and that, that's good to have to, to call out, hey, that paths might change. Um, I mean, we don't have a module loader spec yet. Is that, does anybody know the status of the module loader? <laughs> All right, don't laugh. Don't laugh. <laughs> the I know the uh, this is like the equivalent of System JS's import, uh, which yeah. is you know an analogous to AMD's load, has reached stage two recently. Um, it has to reach stage four, obviously, to become part of it, and that's kind of the big blocker, I would say, for the spec being finalized. So once that's stage four, I would think everything else will fall into place, hopefully. So maybe. I mean, they have till June of next year to make it into ES 2017, right? I guess so, yeah. <laughs> uh, System.import, that's the equivalent of like a promise or a, a dynamic loader, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, it's basically the, the feature that's implemented internally by an AMD loader plugin, right? It has that interface yeah. of loading a resource dynamically. Just different syntax, but same purpose, I think. Yeah, we were talking internally about the differences between system import and like loaders and builders and linkers and, and different things like that. And, and we've determined that, yeah, Webpack is like the linker to the web, but then there's this dynamic set of things that equil are equivalent to roughly DLLs. And, I, and we're just like, why don't they just, you know, follow the DLL model and then we can go right into DLL hell and then go to the next phase of, of module loading and eventually we'll be like at a good place, right? We've seems, solved DLL. Yeah. yeah, it seems like this is a really good segue into Yarn. <laughs> yeah. oh, no, no, we, Intentional or not. We'll get there too, yeah. <laughs> well, well, actually, Neil Neil's going to complain about TypeScript first, right? Oh, our... did, we do the, did we do the never type and I just missed it? No, I, I skipped the never type because never, never type. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so, okay, all right, right. There's, there is a never type in 2.0 and it is way it is way deep in there it is way for library developers <laughs> like, the, like the big use that i can see is is like um an intern there is a um 
there is a skip method and the skip method always throws and in turn catches skip so it it gets you out of your current your current um uh your current stack and it, it blows up your stack and in turn catches that skip to say oh i'm gonna skip the rest of this test forget this you know ignore what i'm doing now and like that would have a never type because it, it's always going to throw but i i can't for the life of me think of anything else other than that which might have a never type so intern's going to find the first ever use case we know of for never as well as the first ever use case for the keyword infinity in javascript <laughs> <laughs> That is true. That is the only time I've ever used infinity. Yes. Is is don't 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 ever end this test. Go to infinity. And now infinity is to move all the way up the context stack. But I mean, the the irony is like testing frameworks seem to tease out all of the really existential features that you might never <laughs> otherwise use. Oh yeah, Brian was using when the other day to flatten out our BDD and TDD oh. uh, stuff. Stuff that you would never ever touch in a million years, except to make your life a little bit nicer in some obscure way. I can't believe you just outed Brian on a podcast like that. Oh, shoot, I named names. Damn it. He's not here. It's okay. That's okay. Show yeah. up again, Brian. Show up to our next podcast, and we'll we'll get you to have a response. So yeah, okay. So th there's a few others. There's a there's a read only type as well, which um, is nice. It's a a type that you can put. It's an access modifier that you can put on a class to say, hey, um, I want to be able to set this sucker in my constructor, but nobody else gets the right to change it but me in my constructor. Um, so it's it's akin to a public type that can't be changed. Uh, and I think that's it. Did we hit everything. Oh yeah, async and await are pushed to two point one because reasons. Um, oh, yeah, well they just couldn't get it done in time and stabilize it. Um, but it's in master for two point one now, I believe. Are decorators still experimental? Well, they're in TypeScript, but the problem that's already happened is they landed in TypeScript before they became a finalized uh, ES spec and they've gone back to the drawing board and been changed by the TC39 group. So they'll have to change in TypeScript, probably for TypeScript 3, given that it'll be a breaking change would be my guess. Gotcha. Yeah, I, uh, I have said before, I'm not a fan of, I like that decorators exist, but I am not a fan of the power it gives somebody to just completely muck up everything. Um, especially since there's no guarantee that it's going to happen in any kind of order uh, when you're you're distributing these things in a library. It's pretty easy to, to muck it up in in a um, oh man, what's the term for it that you can that you should be able to do things in any order, uh, basically an interchangeable order. There's some math term that I forgot because I haven't done maths in forever. <laughs> Item pot no. Yeah, item potency. Is it item potency? Yeah, because so. matrix yeah. matrix cross multiplication is not item potency. It's not unless there's an identity matrix. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In only certain cases is it, and so yeah, like multiplication is item potent. Uh, decorators are not item potent. Right. So good luck on that, peoples. <laughs> <laughs>
I remember when you were first trying to implement uh, composition with decorators, we ran into, uh, given even though they're, they're way too flexible, there's a pretty big limitation in them, right? Well, right now they only sit on classes. Uh, so when we were trying to implement any kind of composition, it just wasn't a good thing. Um, down Somewhere down the line in 2x land, um, in TypeScript, they're going to release the ability to uh, put decorators on anonymous functions and anonymous classes, or yeah, anonymous classes, anonymous functions, and things like that. And I don't know where any of that status is right now. I just know that not all of it's been implemented. I thought there was also something like um, TypeScript would augment the shape of the underlying class based on a decorator, which kind of made it difficult to do the. I think the trouble getting the, the type system to work with it, from what I remember, like you had to do it as two different operations. Right. And then you end up with <laughs> saying that it's one thing, but it doesn't necessarily need to be that thing. I remember it being very odd when we tried to mess with it. Yeah. Which is a criticism of a number of things in, in TypeScript. Of which I have a whole list. <laughs> Just let it out, Neil. Just let it out. All right. This is this is the, the venting portion of it. Neil hates TypeScript. Why? <laughs> <laughs> So I've had some time to work on Dojo 2 stuff, uh, and what I've been doing is kind of uh, making a proof of concept of uh, if we were to be wild and crazy with a new version of Dgrid, what could it have? Uh, so I've been creating this fairly large um, proof of concept that it kind of just takes a bunch of different things from the different... Um, uh, languages and frameworks that I've used over the years, uh, in particular uh, iOS and Android's table implementations, um, and, and kind of just says, what if we did something like this? Uh, and I did it all in TypeScript because that's what we would write uh, Dgrid2 in. So I've been messing with TypeScript a lot. And uh, TypeScript is is not a very good language to, in my opinion, obviously, uh, to kind of knock code quick out quickly. Um, I think where I'll start, I've, I posted this little block of code in our podcast, uh, room right now. Uh, and one, like, so this is one of the first examples. And if, if what I'm doing here is, uh, incorrect and there's a better way to do it, let me know. But, uh, what I'm, what I'm basically trying to do is initiate and or initialize and give type information to an object all at once, uh, where that object uh, at, at some later point in the code uh, will actually have all of its properties assigned, but for right now, they'll just be null values. And I have not been able to figure out a way to give them uh, type information and set them to null without also creating an interface that defines that object. Um, and there, I mean, there's, there's plenty of examples where uh, what I call, uh, what did I call it in my notes? I called it uh, bag of values uh, or <laughs> uh, object literals. Um, ha haven't had enough power for me. In that case, wouldn't the, I mean, part of me would say you want an interface, but so why don't you want to use an interface? So I, I don't mind having an, I don't mind having an interface. So for the viewers, um, the, the, the setup is that there's a, a, a variable that has an interface defined to the right of it using a colon. Um, so you have like this inline type definition of an interface. And 
and assignment. And, and then you have an assignment of that interface to that type. But, you know, why wouldn't you want to create an interface that allows for reuse in that case? Um, I'm The thing that I'm complaining about the most is that um, it, it, it turns something that was very informal in JavaScript into something very formal. Uh, in this case, I was, uh, I'm just prototyping something, right? I don't, I don't know what my final objects are going to look like. Uh, in this case, this is just an inline variable. I don't need this for anything else. I need it just for this one specific function call. Uh, and I need, I just need to preserve context, right? I need to say like, uh, this function needs to have its, uh, a couple of properties preserved when it gets called. Um, but yeah, like my big complaint, I guess, is that there's so much that uh, you, you take a look at JavaScript. In JavaScript, uh, I call a lot of the objects bags of values, right? Like they're very, very simple uh, key value associations uh, that made it very, very easy to do uh, very quick prototypes um, because it didn't, I, I, and I realize this obviously because it didn't enforce type, um, but, but kind of what it's been replaced with is instead of being able to take that same behavior and add type information to it, uh, it's kind of split type information out into a separate uh, layer on top of it. Uh, so the, the thing that has been bothering me a lot about TypeScript is where I, where I want to do things inline, uh, and there's a quite, there's, there's a bunch of different things I want to do inline. Uh, I've kind of either had to create a formal interface for it or create a some or an informal interface for it. And like, like some of the places where you have nested values, it just, it, it looks really ridiculous without going through and creating interfaces for every single thing. Uh, and, and then the thing that I'm working on, um, I might have 30 interfaces at this point because I have a lot of slightly different objects uh, that behave slightly different from one another. So formalizing it seems kind of odd to me. So the example that I posted where I'm creating an interface and assigning an interface at the same time, I'm just wondering why why there's nothing in in TypeScript that lets me easily give type hinting when I'm creating that object. Uh, and, and that's kind of, and it just kind of illustrates like where I'm, where I'm, where my head is at on this. Um, I want, I want to have an object, but I also want it to have type information without giving it an interface and without giving it a, a, a full instance of an object, right? Like if I was actually, if I actually gave it an instance of an object, I wouldn't need to do the interface assignment. So it, it's kind of like, it's not meeting me halfway. Uh, well, so I think, I think the halfway there is, is, um, if you want to go back to the bag of, of junk that you pass around, yep. I mean, you can always use an any type, right? And then just call out that you're like, I'm doing horrible things. And <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like baby kittens and yeah. And here's my password, which is set to password. Don't use that at home kids. And that's where, I mean, that's kind of where I'm tempted to do sometimes, right? Like, well, yeah, but if you're just prototyping, I mean, and you aren't sure what you want it to look like, make it in any type until you, you come back to it later. I mean, I would say this is one of the major sources of people making mistakes in JavaScript that leads to hours of lost time when someone's not a good debugger because, it, you know, typos and property names or unexpected values in a property bag that aren't quite as expected. The number of times I've seen people like in Dojo 1 misspell one of the property names for uh, say the Dojo request object and 
wonder why the thing they're expecting to be JSON is actually plain text, but it looks like JSON, and they wonder why none of the methods where they're expecting it to be JSON work afterwards. And they look at the console, and it looks like JSON, but then they realize it's not syntax highlighted, so it's actually a string. Like, just that's not an error by any stretch of the JavaScript language, um, which is one of its blessings and its curses, right? And it, so if you want the enforcement to prevent those kinds of errors, you kind of have to define it somewhere. Um, I mean, it's possible they could do better. They just haven't, I don't, I don't you know. The, you I know. do want to define it somewhere, right. but I don't want to define it as a full interface. I guess I don't see, what what what's so bad about a full interface? I mean, to play devil's advocate, right? Like, can me, an interface could, is really no more typing than what you have here, right? Well, so let's say that I was to create this object and and give them values as soon as I created it, mm -hmm. right? I wouldn't have to define the interface. TypeScript would know full typing about that object, and it wouldn't complain at all. Like, I could just... Right, because you're literally defining exactly what it is at that moment, and it's sort of like where you're having to define the interface is when you need some abstraction because it's going to change or because you haven't set a value yet. So how would it know, or I guess how would the current system know? Yeah, There are so many really, really messy ways of defining type stuff that it seems weird that there isn't a messy type, a way to define this type. Um, uh, and I guess that, that one of my complaints is that it, TypeScript kind of reeks of someone that doesn't like JavaScript to where like, if I, so if I was doing this, if I was, was doing this type of kind of type assignment, I would say like one of the things I do a lot is I create object literals a lot. Um, I would have, I would have been like, what, what syntax can I use to both define uh, an object literal and give some of the, the uh, properties values at the same time? I think it reeks of someone who's been burned by this mistake more times than they <laughs> want to admit. <laughs> but I wanted I wanted to have type information. Um, yeah. So like the so moving on from there, the other the other thing that I have um, that's caused me to kind of bag my head against the wall is that um, I'll have uh, an interface that I want to use, but the way that I uh, create the object for it doesn't happen all at once. So I might want to have a required property um, in, in the stuff that I've been doing, uh, the required property is called render, right? So I have, there's an interface I need to fulfill. It has a, it has a required property called render. When I create the object literal uh, for it, because I don't want to create a full class for it, because I'm just, I'm just doing bag of values, right? Uh, which is very JavaScript-y. Um, if I create that object, I have to assign that property null. I can't just leave that property out and then assign it as part of an if else on the next couple lines. And this is something that can be maybe fixed in as a static analysis tool gets better. Um, but it's just, it's been something that's kind of been bugging me is that I've been creating these object literals and I just have to give all these values null and then assign them the next couple lines. And I don't view that as any, that, that's an example for me where I don't think I've gained anything by the type system making me do that. We can't, they be optional types, but if I but if, I still want to make sure that I I can make them optionals right for what I'm doing, but they're not. I don't want if someone's looking at the interface right. I don't want them to think that that property is optional. It's a required property. The object that you return needs to have that value as part of it, and there are some that are optional, like completely optional. So I want 
I want to tell people that the interface requires it. But in my code, I, I assign it as part of an if-else, not as part of the object literal creation. So this is like, so it sounds like you're, you're, okay. So it's part of the if else of the creation of this. Yeah. So I, I'll say like, I'll say like uh, view equals object literal. Right. And then I say, mm -hmm. if, if I'm in this situation, view.render is this object else view.render is this other object. Right. But then in the object literal creation, I have to say that render is null when I create it because it's a non-optional property. Okay, so in a factory, you're creating something piecewise, and yeah, I'm creating an, an object from an interface piecewise. Yeah, yeah, um, I cast types personally. <laughs> like, like if you're inside of a function, that's what a function does. Is it 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 is it functionalizes the the various components, puts them together, and and then puts something out there that is eventually going to be this type. Like yeah. that's. I don't know. You were going to say... To me, it's just another one of those things where, like, I, I do this a lot, and I've always done this a lot, and I I look at TypeScript, and I, I'm like, well, it seems kind of weird that, that I don't have, like, a way of um, having a point in the code where I'm saying, like, this is where this is where it's actually working. Like, this is a working object literal now that matches the interface. Um, when I first created it, there wasn't, right? Um, so I... Do you expect your do you expect your code to end up that way, or do you still see this as another like as you're thinking through an idea or prototyping, this is a natural workflow thing? Oh, in this case, I would I wish in this case that I could say like this point in the code I want you to do type checking because this point in the code is where this object should be correct, right? Like before I've reached that point, um, it 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 it's still being assembled, and once it's done being assembled, that's where I want to that's where the type should be complete. And that's where the, the, the static analysis tools should say like, no, you've, you haven't finished creating this object, right? Like, uh, especially if I have complicated branching logic. So much of the direction of both TC39, including like the module loading system, as well as the TypeScript group seems to be around optimizing for sort of static analysis of things that, I can see why they haven't tried to tackle this yet. Yeah. Or at least as far as I know. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I, th this is one of those things where if you buy into using their full class system and creating instances of classes, like you don't run into this problem, but it's where um, I just find that if I'm not using classes and not using class instances, that's where it seems to hit, to hit me the hardest. So it's kind of that that that's my complaint basically is that I feel like I'm having to adopt uh, the whole system when I still want to keep the good parts. Well, I think these are both things you could propose to them as you know it, it just takes some time and define them. I mean, they're pretty receptive to our ideas, but yeah. Uh, but I think the general class of problems you're running into is how do I go from you know, being someone who wants to prototype something or define something fairly loosely and then enforce types later. And that's probably something, it's probably the use case that um, Facebook's flow is optimized around. Because mm. that, that was actually their main argument internally for not using TypeScript was they had a huge JavaScript code base they wanted to start 
adding type checking just to bits and pieces of it yep. as they went and that's what they you know optimized completely around that use case as far as i know and that sounds like such a that that sounds like such a something that typescript should do right uh like in my opinion where uh it does it, it does seem that it, it, it things are much more formalized than they uh in my opinion should be like that like i hear you describing that flow stuff and i'm like no that makes that makes sense that what? It seems like, you know, f at least based on these few examples, TypeScript is optimized for what the end result should be optimally, but maybe not for the path you use to get there. Right. I mean, it's it's used for communicating between developers more than anything. Like types to me is a communication layer. And I, I think we've identified two things that, yeah, TypeScript, again, is, is great for application development. And it's, it's starting to get better for library developers like us. And then two, Neil should use the any type more. <laughs> I don't want to. Or the never type. I guess that's what I'm trying to say is like, I want I want a lot of the type enforcement stuff, um, but I don't want to work around it. And I feel like I'm working around the type system more than I'm working with the type system. Uh, I am casting to any a lot. Uh, even Logging. even with generics, like uh, even some of the generic stuff, like the, the static analysis tool just kind of doesn't capture what I'm trying to do with generics. Uh, especially where um, I'm I'm subclassing a method that has a generic. I've run into a lot of problems with that, too. It seems like you could uh, get into a workflow where you just kind of start out with any and you become more explicit as you go yeah. to handle some of these use cases, which that doesn't really sound like it's working around the type system so much as defining it as you feel like it's the right point in time to define what you want it to be. Yeah, I've ended up doing a lot of inline uh, yeah. type definitions, and that's where, so. I guess that's where I, I'm. What I've where I've kind of ended up at is that I I view inline type definitions as, as kind of an elegant solution to what I'm trying to do, uh, just with a couple of shortcomings that could probably be fixed with a couple of proposals. Yeah, yeah for your factory function, it would be great if there was a way of taking a type and saying, okay, it's this type, but I'm only going to take this one trait out of the type and say, you know, trait, you know, uh, trait value. And then it's going to pull the value out of that, that interface and say, only use, only use that one trait. This is all I'm defining in this step in my factory. Yeah. Yeah. Especially being, being able to kind of take an interface and, and say, this is, this is what I care about. Uh, it is, is kind of an interesting, uh, a JavaScript -y way of doing things, at least to me. Yeah. I don't think it's going to shorten anything that, that, type of trade interface, but at least you'll be able to define things piecewise without having to then define every step in that piecewise function or potentially use interfaces that are not your own that you don't have access to, to break down and use traits out of them. So as if you update those libraries, you can pull the traits out. Um, so if you wanted to make like an extension or a plugin or something for some other TypeScript library, you could use those traits and then still pull them out and not have to worry about keeping your own internal interfaces in sync with them yeah. especially when you're doing any casting which is yeah a little dangerous <laughs> and that's kind of my final point about this whole thing is that i know that a lot of people don't get really in the weeds with javascript but i definitely have right like i know i know basically every little nuance of of how the prototypal inheritance works and and messing with constructors and and i know kind of the inner inner bolts and i've all 
it's one of those things where there's a certain point where you're writing JavaScript and you kind of feel like a god when you create this set of the set of classes and instances that are just like you 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 make you change one line and it completely changes the way that your program works and it and everything's perfect and the sun shines on you. Uh, I, I normally take it the other way. I change one line and it breaks my whole program <laughs> and it no longer works. <laughs> so I've I've kind of gone from like some of it's just a learning curve, right? But I've kind of gone from that to like spending two hours trying to figure out like why it's complaining about some line that I wrote that I think is perfectly valid. Uh, and, and, and that's, that's been my, my kind of experience with TypeScript. And, you know, here I was, I, I kind of have this point in our notes, uh, about how we've been doing this kind of, uh, with Dojo Compose, we've been doing this kind of complicated class composition. And what I find so funny about it is that we're doing all of these manipulations to objects and then saying that the result is a combination of these two types. But really, there's nothing in the static analysis tool that actually knows whether we've done what we said that we're going to do. Uh, and it's one of those things where I look at TypeScript and, and I say, like, there are a lot of pieces missing where you have to lose type information in order to achieve the goals that you want. And I think that that's kind of a design shortcoming. And it's kind of also just because TypeScript is in, is in its infancy, right? Like you sh you should theoretically be able to do everything without having to throw types away and then restore types well but part of that is javascript and trying to not change it truly into a different language right so yeah. i mean typescript implements duct typing rather than a more strict typing system because it seems to lend itself better than any other typing system I've seen before to how JavaScript actually works. And I think they did a good job with that too. Yeah. So you're right. Like it is in its infancy, but at the same time, um, they're trying to exist within the confines and lack of confines of JavaScript rather than, you know, morphing it into C sharp or something else. Yeah. I think one, one of the other problems here is that I've kind of gotten used to the static analysis tools of Xcode, which are, a little bit ridiculous like they they can trace you know a hundred different code paths uh in which you might end up with a divide divide by zero error so i, I kind of am expecting more magic than is warranted here well objective c is a very different language than javascript <laughs> yeah i mean swift, swift was also designed with static analysis in mind too right like it, it it's a language for static analysis yeah and i i mean it to me, it feels like a JavaScript-inspired but static analysis-driven language that still works on top of Objective-C underneath yeah. the scenes, right? So it, yeah. So I am expecting a little bit too much in terms of the type system. Yeah, um, even, with, but, even with Objective-C, it's still on top of C, so you can still do horrible things, like get a yeah. pointer to a uh, to some point in memory and then malloc the whole thing to zero and yeah. put whatever you want in it. It's fun. I mean, JavaScript does that on a daily basis, but you know, it's 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 in the weeds when you get there. So yeah, I feel I feel like I have some complaints, but I, I like what you're saying. Like, I, I think it is. I think some of my complaints are actually things that that TypeScript cares about and would want to work on. So, I'll have to write up some proposals or something. I'm sure the team will be 
the TypeScript team will be glad to hear the podcast and see your proposals because they seem to, <laughs> well, they seem to really love to hear these kinds of things right. too. And you know, uh, what we didn't say before with all of the TypeScript two features is at least half of them were things we were you know participating in and contributing to and giving feedback on because we needed them for Dojo too. So uh, that's one of the really great things about working with that team is to, yeah. the feedback we get and give makes its way into TypeScript, which is really great. Yeah, I remember talking about the this typing. Yep. It's neat to see it actually happen. Yeah, the wild carding uh, yeah. modules and oh, yeah. the path configuration and you know several of these other items were all the result of our work on Dojo 2. We know not necessarily exclusively us, but at least we were part of the conversation on most of those issues to get them to where they are. So, you know, it's kind of, I'm basically giving you the contributions welcome, PRs welcome <laughs> kind of response to your complaining, but I, I totally that see sounds like the right from. answer. <laughs> sounds like the right answer, you know? Yeah. Like, I, um, I'm just saying, like, I would have designed it differently, but I didn't design it, so. <laughs> Best thing I can do is is propose something. Yeah, It's great to be able to to do exactly what you said. Just definitely make those proposals and, and, and then to see them come out and not have to force yourself to... Uh, create your own tool or create your own language or create your own package manager um, transitioning into yarn <laughs> let's talk about yarn <laughs> uh, so I'll introduce this a little well, bit I was gonna say or as I like to call it yawn but with a, yeah. with a subtle <laughs> accent because I'm in the south this week <laughs> is that an umlaut over the A's or is something like that yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've seen that yeah the Developers in Boston call it yawn, and uh, and I've seen somebody have to alias it to yam because they or alias yam to yarn because they, that's what they see when they type it. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, yarn. Um, so this came out what last week, and it's a new uh, CLI tool for uh, npm basically, and well, it's it's a new package manager tool built kind of on top of npm in a way. That is the interface with npm, the, the CLI, or the npm repository? The npm repository. It's a third-party CLI for the npm repository, but it also works with the Bower repository as well. So um, it can work with other sources for the packages. Um, but basically, it's a uh, project that um, they have a whole blog post on uh, Facebook's code uh, blog uh, that kind of talks about why they needed to create it, what problems they were having with the M- and with the uh, built-in npm command, and then what they did to work around it. And it sounds like they worked with a couple of companies uh, and and other um, community leaders to to create a nice a nicer implementation, I guess, of um, of a CLI tool for package managers. And so, in the blog post, that just to summarize, they kind of talk about what what went wrong or what what kept going wrong with npm um and it's it's that they were never getting the same packages um when whenever you run an npm install it wouldn't always resolve to the exact same versions of every package just depending on the order that things resolve in and um how dependencies are mapped with with semver and all of that and um so they they for a while were just checking in their their node modules directory into Git, but that would result in these horrible, horrible 
diffs when they need to update things. Uh, they've used shrink wrap, but because shrink wrap isn't a default thing that happens, if a developer checks in code that would modify that and they don't update the shrink wrap file, then they have to manually go figure out what is the correct thing for everything. So things get out of sync very quickly. And, um, and so they, they started working on this whole infrastructure and realizing they were working on an infrastructure around the NPM client and decided to, instead of doing that, just kind of take a different approach and create a new CLI tool that uh, does some things by default. So the, by default, it creates a yarn.lock file that um, just adds, adds in a feature that locks in exactly what versions of every module that you're getting. So that no matter what, if you check this yarn.lock file in, everybody gets the same version of every module. Uh, there's security, it does checksums on um, the packages that it's getting, and it also caches them offline, so you don't have to, uh, it doesn't have to go re-download those, it keeps them in an internal cache and can pull the exact versions that you need locally, um, which is really nice, makes for faster builds, uh, or faster installs of things. And um, so it seems like a very interesting take on NPM, and seems like it's something that would be really nice to use. On their um, on their site, they have a lot of documentation, which is really nice to see, and they have a, um, a whole guide for migrating from NPM to Yarn, and so really anything that you can do with NPM, you can do with the Yarn tool now, so you could even alias that if you wanted to, in a way. Uh, so what do you guys think about this? Do you think that we need a new tool? Do you think that... I love a lot of the things that Maven had, and so this is great. Oh, this is Yarn. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's Yarn. Their uh... objections are pretty legit. I mean, they're, they're things that... Meaning their objections to the problems with NPM CLI. Uh, and we've certainly had frustrations over the years uh, using various package management solutions, whether it's NPM or Bower, and just, you know, in, in many ways, the the Node culture of the team that works on Node and that works on NPM, I know they're not identical, but they share a lot of the same principles, is to do things the Node way or or else don't use our stuff. So, for example, NPM, um, you know, you can't really alias the name of a module, so if someone else takes your package name, you're you're kind of hosed, and you have to come up with a new package name, and if even if you've been using that package name for years, in other package managers, you're you're kind of out of luck and would have to rewrite code to make it work with NPM or go through some lovely hoops to to change things. But um, so I, I think they have legitimate complaints. But the question is like that I would have is, did they reach out to the NPM team to see if they wanted to fix NPM with them, or did they just kind of go do this and say, yeah, too bad? Or did the NPM team say, we don't really care about this? Um, in the, in the interest of like preventing the world from diverging every day with open source, it'd be nice to know like more of if there was any discussion between the teams before they released it. That's that's really what I was wondering too, because in the blog post, you know, this is mostly a Facebook thing. It looks like, but there's also they they point out that they, uh, you know, Yehuda Katz worked on it, and and so Tildy and and um, Google worked on it as well, and they've been using it internally for a while and it's really stable and all of that. Um, and so if they were reaching out to these other companies, I just wondered, was NPM a company that they, they right. reached out to yeah. as well? Um, so yeah, that's, that's something that I definitely 
was wondering about as well. I know that on the day that it came out, and I'm trying to find it, they did have, NPM had a blog post about Yarn, and they were excited about it in the blog post. Um, so, I mean, there's no malice there or anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The other objection I've heard about it is um, there was another post on Medium where basically the gist of it was that uh, it's great for pulling in dependencies, but it's not really a tool to publish your own packages that are to be reused. They haven't really done anything differently to, to try to solve that problem better. Yet, at least. I don't know if that's the case, because I haven't really tried it in any detail yet. But I think that's that's probably reasonable if they haven't implemented that, because, and, you know, just keeping a feature sync with NPM to do publishing, you know, I, I, I imagine is a lot of work and I can't, I can't wait until Yarn misses, you know, feature parity with NPM. And then there's all sorts of like hubba blue and I know NPM four is coming out soon, right? Like they're, yeah. they're going to release something, something new. And I guess at least that is open source in some way. So you can see some of that, but yeah. It sounds like they had a particular problem that needed a particular set of solutions. And the solutions were, it sounds like, largely picked from solutions that have been out there for a long time um, and have been proven successful. Like having a local cache um, in Maven speeds up things quite a bit. But <clears throat> it's also problematic if your cache gets spoiled somehow or, or messed up. Um, and I don't know how many times I've deleted my M2 folder to reset my cache or to, to fix something there because some exception didn't work the way I, I was expecting it to. Um, yeah, and it sounds like if they're supporting Bower and, um, and NPM and multiple repositories, like that, that's essentially what Wheel did in Maven again. You just pick it, you know, you, you have an API for talking to repositories and all of these things are great, but having them in a separate tool, now you have to know two tools. So I guess it goes back to, to Dylan's point of like, did they reach out? Like, why why weren't these feature sets merged? Yeah, and there's apparently there's also issues with nested lock files. So if you define a yarn.lock and you pull in a dependency that also defines a yarn.lock, it ignores the dependencies yarn.lock file and uh, <laughs> some other yeah. good stuff. And um, I'll share the links for a couple of these blog posts that are interesting. They're by... Uh, Stefan Bonemann, and um, you know his first question was, which I just saw as I was talking right now, was the same question I had, which was why wasn't it possible to contribute their innovations to the NPM CLI, and <laughs> um, you know just kind of why why are we duplicating things when this is such a widely used thing already? And then the other question he asked was, why is why is Yarn at version 0.x.x if it's so great and stable and Facebook's using it in production? what's missing to make it a 1.0 release and because there's really nothing no guidance about what's missing yet at this point from the team working on it well they're going to keep it o.x until version 14 and then they're going to re <laughs> reversion right. it to version 15 version 14.0 or 15.0 right yeah right that's, that is true that's i forgot Facebook about that semantic version yeah yes yes <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, forks are important to to try out experimental things in open source. Um, 
hopefully these features are going to get proven out and then merged in as something um, successful. I mean, this sounds more more like a, a reimagining of NPM than a fork, but still there, there sounds like there's a number of features here that could help improve um, things at scale like Facebook and Google. Sure. So do you think that this may end up being like another IOJS that just helps push the NPM client forward or that will just kind of have multiple CLIs for uh, our package managers going forward? We didn't even have like we didn't even have the mind space to keep Bower and NPM in the same <laughs> uh, in the same space. Like once NPM was enough feature parity to Bower, I think I think we just started looking at NPM as our single solution. Whatever happened to JSPM? What? Whatever happened to JSPM? <laughs> exactly. <No. laughs> I thought that was supposed to be the package manager to end all package managers, right? Well, it just ended itself, it sounds like. I guess. <laughs> I, I was answering your question with humor, right? So basically, <laughs> yeah. uh, as long as we, this stuff matters, there'll be multiple versions of it. But, the, you know, I guess part of it was, you know, Facebook's post kind of gushed about how this is how open source, how open source is supposed to happen and collaborative and with different companies. But really, it was a departure from Facebook's normal model of doing everything in-house before they release it. And they happen to tell a few of their friends about it and work together uh, rather than doing it as part of, you know, an open source foundation or a, a truly open collaboration to create something better. So um, I guess that's what I, I'm sure they have an answer for it. I just haven't heard what the answer is in non-marketing speak at this point. So you're kind of saying they're like that ordinary developer who goes off and does things his way and then shares it with a few friends and claims victory. Yes, yes, but they're they're just a really, you know, well-known person, so they have a big voice to shout with and and that's fine. I, I don't want to be cynical, but Well, there's a know. lot of well-known people that are very ornery still. Yeah. <laughs> right. I just mean if it was a random developer and two of their friends doing this, we would have he we would not have heard about it yet, but because it's, you know, got the marketing muscle of Facebook behind it, everyone's heard about it. That's yeah. a really good point. I'm being quite a downer today. Let's do something a little more fun. This is <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, calling Neil a whiner, complaining about Facebook. <laughs> Who else can I insult in one podcast? <laughs> we solved Neil's problems. Neil needs to use the AnyType and be free. Yes, <laughs> and write some proposals to make TypeScript better. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I thought the answer was that I'm going to fix everything. Right, right. Okay. All, of my, all of my legitimate complaints, I'm going to submit fixes for them. Did you say all of your illegitimate complaints? No, my legitimate ones. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you can submit fixes for your illegitimate complaints. Yeah, I'm going to do, I'm going to do both. <laughs> yeah. You'd be that ornery developer. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I don't really have a good answer, but... I have this problem. Fix it. I have this problem. <laughs> So the other topic we wanted to get to uh, was the uh, the news that came out uh, a little earlier this week about the JS Foundation, um, and so Dylan, you're involved with that, and um, you know I thought it'd be good to kind of talk about um, how we got here, like the Dojo Foundation, and and uh, you know how we, how we got from there to here. Sure. Uh, so I'll try to tell a long history story really fast. So basically. 
when we started working on Dojo in 2004, Alex and I didn't want to create something that was copyright Dylan and Alex. And we had a couple of friends who had worked on open source foundations. Um, There's Martin Cooper, who was involved with Apache, and there was uh, uh, David Asher, who was involved with the Python Software Foundation. And we asked them for some advice and what we should do. Um, and part of this was because Alex uh, Russell, the other digital co-founder that was active with me at the time, um, he had worked on a project called NetWindows that I had been involved with. And we received a, a friendly cease and desist letter from Microsoft uh, because of the name containing the word Windows, even though it had nothing to do with Windows. So we wanted to have a, a sort of safer protection legally from the code base we were creating and the things we were doing, both for our users and our contributors. So we got on this idea of creating an open source foundation, and neither of us really wanted to run a foundation. We just wanted to do something that would protect our users and have the ability to help out with things as as the project went on. And over the years, uh, the Dojo Foundation was a relatively small foundation, but we got a number of projects interested in joining our efforts. Um, early on, we had Comet D, and we actually had the the jQuery sizzle selector engine, and then we had Require.js and Lodash more recently, and just a number of great projects. And about 18 to 24 months ago, the jQuery people reached out, and they had established their own foundation a few years back, maybe five years ago now. And they said, it would be really great if we merged uh, and joined forces, because we have the same mission, which is to make the JavaScript ecosystem better, and a lot of our projects are used by you know, the, both by users of each other's projects and so forth. And um, at first, I kind of resisted the idea, sort of, why do we need consolidation in JavaScript foundations? And uh, But really, they made the case that, you know, running a foundation is a lot of work if you want it to become something more that can support the ecosystem on a bigger level. And it would be a really great story if, you know, two long rivals, Dojo and jQuery, who really were friends kind of behind the scenes, but have very different focuses on how they build their you know, libraries, to join forces on a, a foundation level, which the idea being we could collaborate, we could help each other out, we could grow communities, we could support standards more efficiently by you know talking about things and then working together on various groups like TC39 and various W3C groups and so forth. And so a little over a year ago, we merged and we started searching for a new name and some of the names proposed were, you know, the, the Joe query or the Doge query foundation and, you know, other humorous things. And we, we probably went through a few hundred different name ideas, none of which were particularly great, but the JS foundation was kind of our default name uh, for that. And so we spent a lot of time doing that. And then over the past year, we've been working to, attract new projects. So ESLint joined the effort, and um, they announced at the same time they merged with JSCS to try to consolidate their efforts in building you know, better linting tools. And then um, we decided it would be a good time to do uh, a, bi a bigger announcement, because you know, changing the name into something that had a mission that reflected this bigger JavaScript community we were trying to support not just foundation projects, but you know, we we really want to sort of help wherever we can make JavaScript, the JavaScript ecosystem more powerful and sustainable. And so we made this big announcement, and Appium joined, and Webpack joined, and um, you know, five or six other projects. JerryScript, which is the Samsung and ARM and a few others, IoT 
uh, slightly stripped down version of JavaScript joined. And so it was pretty cool to get all of these projects and all of these great member companies to join together with the goal being we want to improve the JavaScript ecosystem. So in 12 years, we've gone from Dylan and Alex not wanting to be sued to having a, a foundation that represents uh, more than two dozen open source projects that chances are you use at least one of them every day in your development efforts with JavaScript is, is pretty cool. And uh, you know we just want to be an inviting group that encourages more people to collaborate and, and share. So it, in fact, it very much is related to the previous topic of why didn't they work with NPM to make the NPM command line tool better, which is the foundation wants to encourage people to work together rather than just do reinvent the same thing but slightly different. Um, to make things better overall and to save people time. That's cool. It, so it, I also read it was part of the, the Linux Foundation. Is that true or did I just make that up? No. So that's what's confused people because people are like, why are you saying this is part of the Linux Foundation when it was formerly the jQuery Foundation? And the Linux Foundation is a foundation, foundation that backs Linux, but it's also a foundation that helps other foundations. So in fact, the Node.js Foundation is also a Linux Foundation project. And what that means is that the Linux Foundation helps us out. So, um, you know, the foundation itself has one employee, which is um, Chris Borchers, who does a tireless, thankless job of trying to grow a foundation. And basically, he listens to everyone complain all the time and tell them how he's not doing enough. And, and that's pretty typical for that kind of role. But what the Linux Foundation does is because they support, uh, they support, I think, a dozen or two open source foundations is they can scale things up as needed. So say the foundation wants to put on an event for all of their projects. Well, we don't have event staff or people who can plan that. And we could scramble to throw something together, or we could work with the Linux foundation. And they could help us run a really high quality event. Or suppose we're trying to get more sponsors and raise awareness. Well, the Linux Foundation has a lot of member companies across their organizations. And not that they're just going to tell those people to give us money, but at least they could make introductions and say, hey, you know, you guys are interested in this. Maybe you'd be interested in, in helping the JS Foundation and, and opening those doors. But So really, it's just a foundation to support us because we're not a big employee-driven foundation. We're mostly a volunteer-driven group. If that That's makes cool. Sense. I like that. No, a foundation yeah. of foundations with with yeah. access to people who have done other stuff before. So if we want to have right. a JavaScript ball, we'll we'll ask them and right you know, like, <laughs> the, the JavaScript the ball and yeah the JavaScript ball. Uh, why am I reminded of you know the typical policeman ball joke, right? <laughs> <laughs> What's <laughs> What's the typical policeman bulge? Well, uh, you know, someone is driving and, um, you know, they get pulled over for speeding. And they're like, I'm so sorry, officer. I was running late for the policeman's ball. And they're like, policemen <laughs> don't have balls. And then you're like, oh, they don't. All right. <laughs> That's terrible. I love it. I can't believe you've never heard that joke. That's like first grade kind of bad lowbrow humor. And um, so the fact that you said the word ball just cracked me up. So, yeah, I, I see where my mind is, I guess. But, yeah. <laughs> first grade humor. <laughs> um, I you can't see Paul, but he is genuinely blushing. This is great. <laughs> I love it. I can't catch my breath. <laughs> Dylan, could you summarize why a project might want to join uh, the JS Foundation? Like, what what are the benefits? 
to me, and the reason I would tell someone to join is, one, it, it is a pain to start your own. Okay, well, stepping back, why would a project want a foundation to begin with, right? Yeah. And one is you don't really want to be legally responsible for everything that happens in an open source project as an individual. Two, um, if you want to encourage widespread adoption by many different companies, very few companies want to invest time and resources in something that's owned by a competitor or just owned by a single company that could turn evil. And that's what happened with the Node.js Foundation and why it was formed was because people were complaining that Joyent had you know, full autonomy over the direction of Node.js, so they were getting frustrated and forked it, led to I.O., which led to the foundation and the, the remerging of the projects. Um, so those are your typical reasons for why you would want to be in a foundation. But then beyond that, there's a typical life cycle of a software project when it's successful or not. And in both cases, um, what happens is the original early contributors tend to find themselves either in a situation where they get burnt out or they get bored of the project and they don't have an easy way to hand it off to people maintaining it, or they the project becomes so popular that they can't keep up with the demand. And that's what happened to jQuery and it's what happened to Dojo is early on, we just couldn't manage the needs of the community and we just felt the crush of the weight. And often what happens is the original like founder of a project gets burnt out. They don't want to even open their email or their chat because they don't want to hear anything about what's wrong with their project that day. And so there's a lot of things that happen over this and the life cycle of an open source project kind of matches the hype curve of anything. So, you know, early on, no one cares, and then suddenly everyone cares, and then everyone thinks it sucks, and that crashes down. And then after that, it becomes sort of stable and grows, or it falls off the face of the earth. And, and so the idea is to help projects through those phases where they're going to struggle, or they just need help, or they need someone to talk to, or they don't know what to do, or they have problems with a community member who's difficult, or... Um, they need some a bit of marketing help because they need to get the word out about something they're trying to solve, or you know any of those sorts of things. Or they want to they want some collaborators and they don't know who to talk to, or you know, just any of the kinds of problems or challenges that might come in running an open source project that most engineers haven't had to deal with before. And uh, to be fair, when when we started Dojo, we could have joined the Apache Foundation. Um, but the Apache Foundation had a fairly involved, or at least what seemed to be to us to be an involved incubator process, and a lot of foundations tend to be very process-driven. So the JS Foundation tries to have just the right amount of process and no more. Um, I think you can always deal with less process if possible, and um, but th that's the reason we did our own foundation, is we felt like there was too much process at the time. Now, of course, after the fact, I was told, well, you guys had a project. You could have just joined and you would have been immediately you know, accepted and it wouldn't have been a big deal. Um, but you know, I think the, the challenge is just you probably, as an open source founder, don't want to run an open source foundation. Uh, it's pretty rare to, for people to have an interest in both things. And just getting that help can, can take one more thing or you know, a number of things off the burden of your shoulders as the you know, creator of a project. Nice. Yeah, that's a lot of things I hadn't considered, like burnout or even if something happened to an open source maintainer and something a project is really big, it's nice to to have the foundation behind it to to make sure the project keeps going and to to uh, shuffle resources to it as needed. Right. And and back to the you know the 
cease and desist from Microsoft over Windows, which full circle now we're praising the virtues of Microsoft's embracement of open source, right? But 12 <laughs> years ago, they were not the same company. Uh, I imagine if we had an established foundation, we would not have received that letter because X Windows did not receive a letter to shut down. I mean, they predated Microsoft Windows, so they had a bit of a benefit there. But also, you wouldn't generally go after a project that's well-backed or, or funded to be able to protect itself from that. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, that's uh, really exciting. So we're... Uh, about out of time here. Um, do we have any anyone have any closing thoughts? I have no thoughts whatsoever. <laughs> I would just like to say you do have thoughts, um, <laughs> but I would like to uh, reach out or do a call out to. Um, oh my gosh, I can't remember his name now. I'm drawing a blank. But we have one fan in London who complained that I'd never been on the podcast before. So <laughs> if he's listening, he can just know that we you know, fulfilled his request to have us on the show. So, yep. It's all because of you. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> this is like one of those dreams come true organizations then, Dylan. <laughs> it's the Make-A-Wish JS Foundation <laughs> dot biz 2.0. Excellent. Make JS great again. Yes, and that's not spelled with a G G R A T E version of great. <laughs> All right, well, uh, thanks everyone for uh, another great discussion, and thanks Dylan for joining us today. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Okay. Later. Thanks everyone. One, two, three, four. I was rolling down the window Cause I like to feel the wind blow We got a good thing Gonna see where the day goes Take it fast, take it real slow We got a good thing
got a good thing going on. Ba, 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 ba.